0: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Brian Pauly. My goal here is to help you be a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ Impacting the culture around you. And so I'm trying to help you do that by interviewing scholars who have written books, uh, giving you insight and deeper explanations in the deep, pressing questions that you have, as well as taking time once a month here on the last Thursday of every month to try to answer your questions, to think through some of these deep, difficult issues with you, and to help you better understand Christianity, defend it, and faithfully live it out. Also, if you're a skeptic and you are just trying to learn about Christianity, uh, here's a place where hopefully you can learn a few things, where you can hopefully. hopefully. Hopefully get some answers to this. Now, I don't know everything. I haven't studied everything. But uh, my goal is to help you think through the things that are pressing doubts and questions you have about Christianity, ethics, values, religion, and those sort of issues. And so that's what the goal is here. So I have questions that came in ahead of time from social media, from YouTube, also uh, TikTok and Instagram. Instagram, Facebook, other places, as well as you have the chance to send in your questions here as well. And so uh, if I don't get a chance to answer your question, my goal is to answer it maybe later on. Maybe I don't really have a good answer for it at the moment. Uh, but again, uh, I want to try to think through these issues to help you be encouraged to engage the culture faithfully. If you don't know much of who I am, maybe you stumbled across this video. I'm a high school teacher. My name is Ryan Pauley, and I teach a Christian doctrine, historical Christian doctrine, apologetics, a philosophy of ethics, and a comparative religions and worldviews course. Uh, Uh, to 10th through 12th graders and so uh, I love talking about these sort of things and helping students think deeply about the questions that they have as well. So you can start sending those questions in. Um, also, if you want to call into the show, I want to try to have a chance to kind of have those conversations. And, and I know that's better than just responding to a message. So you can always use the number there at the bottom of the screen, 714-989-6927, uh, where you can call into the show as well. So uh, with that, we're going to kind of jump into some of the questions and thoughts that I had uh, coming into this. And then we'll start taking the questions uh, from the live chat but we already have a question from the live chat. So, uh, Donus, thank you for sending that in. Now, um, I am going to have to point you uh, to an interview I did. So, Donus is asking the question, will you please compare and contrast ransom theory, Christus Victor, and penal substitutionary atonement and explain why you prefer one over the other? Um, that is a, a big question. Um, and um, really, I don't want to do a disservice in, in kind of giving a very basic view. Now, I did have a much fuller conversation on this topic with William Lane Craig. And so I will, uh, after the fact, post a link in the description below on YouTube uh, to the interview where I interviewed William Lane Craig on the view of the atonement. Um, One thing that we talked about in that interview was that, um, you know, there's, there's kind of aspects of each of these that is true. And so I think he kind of talked about, you know, having a, a realization, the atonement kind of answers these different questions. And these are not necessarily competing theories, uh, but they actually can kind of work together in multiple ways uh, to really kind of give a more comprehensive view of the atonement. And so uh, without kind of getting some notes and and diving deep into this and kind of misrepresenting some of the views, uh, I'm gonna kind of leave it at that, but I would encourage you uh, to go check out that interview with William Lane Craig. Um, I believe it's called, I don't know what it's called. I have to look that up here really quick. Um, Let me see here really quick if I can find it. It's just the doctrine of the atonement. Why did Jesus have to die? Something of that nature. Let's see. It's called the atonement is central to Christianity. What it means however, what it means and why it matters. Uh, the thumbnail says, why did Jesus have to die for my sin? So if you go to my uh, YouTube page, uh, you can maybe see that. I don't know if it'll pop up here. Uh, oh, I don't know what all that is. But anyways, um, it is there at the bottom and um, hopefully that will help. So thank you so much, Adonis, for sending in that first question for us. Um, all right. I have gotten a lot of comments on a video that I made uh, talking about uh, why I think you cannot unknowingly get the mark of the beast. And so a lot of comments are coming in recently, especially what's what's going on with COVID and the COVID vaccines and the proof of vaccines and what that looks like for being able to go to restaurants and shop and sporting events and all this kind of stuff, asking or either asking or saying that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast or people are kind of alluding to it. Like, hmm, doesn't this sound familiar? You can't buy or sell unless you have this or... um, just asking, is this the mark of the beast? And so I want to take a, a little bit of time and, and talk through this with you guys and, and look at scripture. Um, again, there's a lot of claims that are being made on this topic. And so the question is, okay, if we want to know what is true, we got to look and see what does scripture say? So let's look at this passage uh, of what Revelation chapter 13 is talking about. So this is the section talking about the second beast, of revelation 13 now first of all we just have to stop for a second and recognize that revelation is apocalyptic literature there is a lot of language apocalyptic language imagination kind of type language that excuse me may not necessarily be meant to be taken literally uh, but is um hinting at something or alluding to something or is you know meaning has a deep meaningful significance it's not that it's just made up uh, language or made up information that's not going to take place. But uh, understanding how exactly it's going to take place is understanding the genre of it being apocalyptic literature. And so I say that because, you know, when it comes to the mark of the beast, uh, in in one sense, as it says here at the bottom, uh, is that there's going to be a mark on the forehead or the right hand. Now, there are some scholars that say uh, this is a literal mark. Some people believe this is literal. Revelation says there's a mark. And so there's going to be a mark. Others, it's like, well, it's not necessarily literally a mark, but it's something like visible that will be a visible representation or something obvious that you will be able to tell about the person. And so I want to make a couple comments because I think this kind of helps us make sense of this claim that the vaccine is the mark of the beast uh, and 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 understand, well, how do you get it? Where does it come from? And when you look at this section and you look at this chapter in Revelation chapter 13, there's a few times that it talks about this idea of worshiping the beast. There is one, oh, that just highlighted everything. Go away. There we go. Uh, worship uh, the first beast here in that verse right there. It talks about worshiping the first beast. Uh, later on, it talks about that again. Uh, those who would not worship the beast are to be slain. And so there's a lot about worshiping the beast. And so then it says, and it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or its number of its name. Now, here is my opinion. Here's what I think that this is talking about and my best understanding and looking into this and researching this. I think that you receive the mark of the beast based on if you worship the beast. I do not think that the mark is something that you can get unknowingly, which is what I made that one video about. Um, I do not think that this is something that just comes upon you. I think that this is something that is willfully chosen based on who you are worshiping. There is, I think, clear teaching in scripture. Uh, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are clothed in righteousness, that Jesus holds on to you and that you are marked as a child of God. And I think that what this is talking about for those who worship the beast, as it says a couple times, that then it causes them, those who worship the beast, uh, to have a mark of the beast. And now I don't know if this is a physical mark on the right hand or forehead. Or if this is something more symbolic, to me, it it doesn't really matter all that much. But what I think this is, again, talking about is that it is clearly those who are worshiping the beast get the mark of the beast. Those who worship Jesus do not get the mark of the beast. And so uh, this is signifying who your allegiance is to. And so this is going to be a way to discriminate against believers, right? So where you don't have the mark, you can't buy or sell. Now, again, this is where people then say, well, this sounds a lot like the vaccine. Uh, If you don't have the vaccine or the vaccination card, then you cannot, you're you're making it harder to buy or sell. Well, here's my question when it comes to the vaccine. Do you have a vaccination card based on if you're a follower of Jesus or a worshiper of the beast? And to me, the answer is no. There are Christians who got the vaccine and Christians who didn't. There are non-Christians who got the vaccine and non-Christians who didn't. Uh, And so whether you have the vaccination card or the vaccine in no relation is to whether your allegiance is to the beast or your worship is to Jesus. And so um, to me, that is a big defeater of this worry or this question of can I get the mark of the beast with the vaccine or is the vaccine the mark of the beast? And I think that here in Revelation chapter 13, it clearly is saying that the mark of the beast goes to those who are worshiping the beast. And it's this way to discriminate against those who are believers there at the end time. And so, again, this is um, helpful, maybe, to some of us who are maybe worried in that um, it's symbolizing the spiritual control, this allegiance or the behavior. Uh, You don't get this unknowingly. Uh, You are choosing to. Now, some people ask, well, what if it's forced on you? Well, I don't think it can be forced on you. Why? Why? Because you are making that choice in the end, whenever this takes place, however it takes place, those who are in Christ will be secure safely in Christ. Jesus says that he holds on to those that he will lose none that the father has given him. And so those who are faithful followers of Christ, the whatever it may be, the the oppression, the whatever happens and says, okay, you need to worship the beast or else. And those who are faithful will say, look, I'm not doing this. And we've seen Christians remain faithful throughout the centuries in the early church, the Christians who were put to death because they remain faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. You need to worship Caesar. You need to bow down. Christians said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then there was persecution because of it. And so there is going to be this choice of, of take it or possibly be persecution. I think that what this is talking about is this idea of not being able to buy or sell. Uh, there's this type of discrimination. Um, but hopefully, maybe an encouragement to those who are believers is that those who are true in Christ are gonna remain faithful to him and therefore will not get the mark of the beast. So this is not something that you wake up one day and all of a sudden you have, um, or or that is forced on you without your choice. And so um, those are kind of a lot of questions that I get. I know that's a very brief uh, explanation of it because this is not a deep in-depth study into what the mark of the beast is, but I just think very clearly when you look at Revelation chapter 13, uh, this is something that comes from wh- who you worship, whether you worship Christ or you worship the beast. Those who worship the beast, uh, Uh, will get marked uh, in some way to signify that they are given allegiance to the beast. And therefore, they are the ones that can buy or sell. The believers will not be able to buy or sell because they don't have the mark. And therefore, it will be a way to discriminate against them. The vaccine has no connection to whether you're a believer or not. It's just whether you get it or not. And therefore, I don't think the vaccine is the mark of the beast. So uh, hopefully that helps at least give a thought, whether you agree or disagree. Maybe it'll just give you something new to think about there when it comes to the vaccine. Um, second question that I want to think about with you guys today is is something that I kind of actually just got done talking with my class about, and it is why do you have the view of God that you do? And so, uh, with my apologetics and doctrine class, we are just starting the doctrine of God. We're starting to study theology proper, and so the first thing we looked at was okay, so how does our culture look at God? And and there's ways in which we you know the studies that have been done, and there's an interesting study that evaluated people and put everyone's kind of view of god into four categories and the categories were based upon whether they saw god as engaged in people's lives or disengaged and then whether they saw god as um, judgmental or non-judgmental and so it's very interesting i think it was about 31 percent of people said that they saw god as both engaged and judgmental. This would be the authoritative view of God, that God is involved in our lives, that he has things to say about our lives, and that he is judgmental, and that uh, he is going to judge for you breaking the rules, for you going against what he has done, and for him, for you sinning. Then there's about, I think it was about 24% of people said God is what they called benevolent, that God is engaged but he is non-judgmental. He's kind of like this nice life coach, right? The authoritative view is is like a father, father being engaged in the child's life, but also having rules and enforcing the rules and judging when the rules are broken. The benevolent view, uh, God being engaged and non-judgmental is kind of like a positive life coach, right? Very involved in your life. But hey, when you break up, when you mess up, it's okay, no big deal come on, keep going. Way to go. Just cheer you on and encourage you back on your feet. But there's no punishment. There's no judgment. Just this very non-judgmental way to go. Maybe kind of like a grandparent uh, for those who have maybe a distant grandparent uh, who is not necessarily raising you uh, or an uncle and aunt where everything is fun and exciting. And when you do something wrong, you give them off to the parents, right? Because the uncle and aunt maybe don't have to punish. Uh, That's always the best part about being an uncle, right? Um, now the third category is those who say God is uh, disengaged, but judgmental. And this would be like a critical view of God. I think this is about another 24% of people that had this view of God, where, where God is just sitting back at a distance. He's not engaged in our life. He's disengaged. He's just sitting back and just pointing out all the mistakes. I mean, this is how some people view God, where they, God is just this you know guy that sits up in the sky and just watches what we do in our bedrooms, right? And he's always just judging and condemning us, but he doesn't really care. He is disengaged from us. He doesn't truly love us or care about us, but he's just trying to catch us doing something wrong. This is the disengaged but judgmental view of God. And then lastly, you have the disengaged and non-judgmental view of God. This was the smallest category uh, where God just sits back and doesn't really care. He created the universe and set the things in motion. This is more like God is like a cosmic force. Um, He just kind of is there and not a big deal and just kind of letting you do your thing. And so what I had my my students do is this kind of the four views that kind of people broadly kind of put God either engaged, judgmental, he's engaged, but non-judgmental. He's disengaged and judges us and disengaged doesn't really care. And I had my students uh, kind of write a journal uh, talking about what they saw in their friends and the people around them, which view their friends and and parents and people in their life held, and then also um, what view they personally held to. Now, what's interesting is this. They kind of in general mentioned that adults had more of authoritative view of God, that God is Engaged and judgmental, but the kids saw more of a benevolent view of God. The God's engaged, but He's non-judgmental. And I thought that was very interesting how uh, the different the kids, students to adults, and how they saw that. My non-Christian students saw God more of distant. Like oh, I don't really believe in God. I think maybe He's out there, but He's just whatever. He's out there doesn't really matter in my life. He's this distant view of God. Uh, maybe this cosmic force doesn't judge, doesn't care. He's distant, no big deal. Now, what's interesting is a couple things. Number one. Is everyone had a view of God. Everyone thinks about God. This is where I want to kind of get to with this question and get you to think about is that everyone has a view of God. They have thoughts about God. But here's the question. Where do these thoughts come from? Why do you have the view that you have? Where, Where do you get these ideas? And when I ask this to the students, One of the most common responses is, well, I got it because my parents were Christians and they were very judgmental and strict. And so then I got this very negative judgmental view of God because they said that they were Christians and they were doing this because they're Christians. Or my parents are not Christians. They don't really care about God. And so I don't really care about God. So I think that he is distant because he's distant to our family. Often our view of God comes from our experience, how we've experienced the church. We also have a a view of God based on our feelings. Another common thing is, well, I pray. I don't feel God when I pray. Therefore, I think God is distant because we're basing our view of God based on how we feel. Now, to me, that's, that's a huge one for me. I don't know about you guys. I don't know about you. When you pray, do you feel God really close? Sometimes, maybe. I've never heard the voice of God. I've never experienced him in some crazy supernatural kind of way. A lot of times when I pray, it feels like I'm talking to an empty room. Now, do I, here's the question. Do I let my feelings now dictate who God is and what he is doing or where do I go? And so my encouragement to my students and to you was, where do you get your view of God? Well, it should come from scripture. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've had uh, shows talking about the reliability of the New Testament and the Bible. And then I also talked with Lydia McGrew. And then I also talked about last week with the evidence for Jesus and Jesus being God with Jay Warner Wallace. And so if we have good reason to believe that the Bible is true, that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, where God is revealing himself to us. The question is, what does the Bible say about God? Who does God say he is? rather than what do we think about God based on our experiences or our feelings? Isn't that where we should go? Now, again, you could ask students, uh, you know, what do you think about Mr. Pauly's class? Uh, what do you think about my class? And uh, you will have students that be like, man, it's the best class and it's really fun. And we get to talk about things and share our thoughts. And we get to discuss important issues. And then you have students that be like, man, it's, it's the worst. Uh, we don't have a lot of fun. He's not very funny. And it's uh, <laughs> that funny that I'm not very funny. I don't know. I have a weird sense of humor. Um, He just tries to prove us wrong all the time and and students really don't like me. And so students often come into my class that don't know me with very different expectations of what class is gonna be like based on what others have told them. Now, is that who I am based on how someone else has experienced me? Or is it I am who I am based on how I have revealed myself to them? We recognize that people have very different experiences of the same person. That doesn't mean those experiences are both true. We have to get to know the person to know the true person and how they are and how they are interacting with us. And so the encouragement here is when we meet people who have very different views of God, whether he's this mean jerk and bully, whether he's this distant, I don't care, do whatever you want kind of person, whether he's just kind of like this vending machine, this easy, you know, help me now button where we only go to him when we are in trouble The question is maybe challenging you, challenging others to think deeply of where do you get your view of God? Does it come from your experiences? Have you had a negative experience in the church and then you associate that negative experience to God? Well, guess what? Look, I'm a fallen, broken person and I'm going to mess up and do things. I sure hope that people do not sit in my class and see maybe some way that I've messed up lost my temper or something, and then claim that God is that way. My, my broken reflection is not a reflection of God. In the same way, I hope that we don't recognize that our feelings are not a determining factor of who God is. When I pray and I feel like I'm talking to an empty room, it doesn't mean I am. What does scripture say? Scripture talks about God hearing us when we pray. Scripture talks about God never leaving us, no forsaking us. Scripture talks about God walking with us through the valley of the shadow of the death, right? It it talks about how God is near and close to us. And so my encouragement is that when we are in those difficult times, when we are praying and feeling like God is so distant, that we go back to the word of God and see what does God say? He says he is always there. And I'm going to trust what he says Because he can't lie. He is God rather than what I feel like. Because our feelings often deceive us. Our feelings often lead us astray. Where we feel like someone's mad at us and they're not. Or we feel like someone's really happy and they're actually mad at us. Our feelings often deceive us. And so I think this is important to recognize is where do we get our view of God from? Let's go back to scripture. Let's always point back to scripture in helping us understand our views. Um, All right. Next question. They come in. Again, if you have questions, you can call in. You can send those in the live chat. Please um, uh, join me as I try to help respond to some of your questions that you have and help you think deeply about this. You can always call in or text. Again, text your question and name to 714-989-6927. You can do that even after the fact. If you're listening after, you can do that for next month's Q&A. And then also you can comment in the live chat. Thank you guys so much for being here. Next question that came in on Instagram. uh, Is the behemoth in Job, a dinosaur. All right, let's look at what does Job have to say about the behemoth. Here we have the only reference uh, in scripture to be the behemoth in Job chapter 40 verse 15. It says behold be- behold behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. So obviously what we have here is... you know, in exaggerated language, Uh, not that this creature actually has uh, tubes of bronze for bones and bars of iron for limbs, but is talking about its strength and its sturdiness. Now, there are scholars that are going to be on very different sides of of this conversation and what exactly the behemoth is. Um, Some people will say that the behemoth refers to cattle. Um, maybe a hippopotamus—that is a very common explanation. Uh, that it seems like uh, could be a a, a good fit. Um, we also see maybe uh, it could be some kind of symbolic creature. The difficult thing there is that it says, "I made uh, I made the behemoth as I made you." So in verse fifteen, uh, it's it's hard if you're going to say, "Well, this is probably a mythical creature. It's not really real. It's just to kind of prove a point." Well god is saying here that i made the behemoth as i made you and the making of you is not symbolic and therefore maybe the making of the behemoth is not as well and so if we kind of take the mythical beast part this is all mythical it's not actually real i think um it has a a difficulty there now the hard part then is that this kind of parallels and it's also brought up uh with the leviathan which we see in chapter 41 the next chapter And so it says, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in its nose and pierce its jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? And so it goes on and kind of talks about the Leviathan. And and the Leviathan is mentioned more than others. Um, Now, some people, again, say this is a crocodile. uh, And that fits some descriptions of what it says the Leviathan is. Is like. However, there's other descriptions. Uh, I can't remember exactly where, uh, but talks about, um, you know, fire coming out of its mouth and that sort of thing. And we know that crocodiles don't breathe fire. And so, uh, is there some, again, exaggerated language? Is this some sort of mythical creature? My position uh, is look, this it, to me is one of those way down the list things of importance. Uh, whether this is mythical, whether this is a hippopotamus, whether this is some other creature that uh, existed but has gone extinct, maybe it's a dinosaur, uh, I'm not quite sure. And I don't think it is honestly that important to try to figure out what exactly is this creature. We know it's a powerful creature. God is referring to it as being part of his creation, so I'm pretty sure it's it's a it's a real creature. Um, whether it's a, a an alligator or something else, I'm not quite sure, um, but uh, those are at least some descriptions that we see there of the, the behemoth. So is it a zi- dinosaur maybe? Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's a hippopotamus. We're um, not quite sure, but talks about it eating grass and being really sturdy. and sure it sounds like something like that, some sort of <laughs> a creature like that. Um, all right, the last question actually that I have. And so if you have other questions, uh, comment in. And, uh, and let's kind of keep this conversation going. So last question here is, why were the books of the New Testament chosen? Um, so there's often claims and objections and arguments made that, um, you know, the books were just kind of randomly picked. Uh, and, and so someone sat down and here's this collection of 100, 150 books or whatever. And they're just kind of picking and choosing uh, the books that they want to have included in the Bible. Same thing with the Old Testament. Um, that is not true. That is not how these books were chosen. There were criteria uh, that is a reason why these books are there. Now, there's more details that I want to go into. And this is going to take a little bit more detailed research uh, to point out a lot more specifics because I'm getting a lot of comments on some videos that I made about the apocryphal books, uh, Maccabees and others. And why are those not included? Uh, But here's a couple of thoughts. When it comes to the Old Testament, uh, some of the criteria that were required for the Old Testament, the first one is that it had to be inspired by God. Uh, now, the obvious way to know that this is inspired is that it's a prophet of God who is speaking these words. And we know that then it is God's word. I think that is one difficulty uh, with some of the apocryphal books like uh, Maccabees. I think it's 2 Maccabees or 1st, 2nd, chapter 9, verse 27 talks about that this book was written in the time where the prophets were not speaking. And so if there are no prophets of God speaking, the prophets are speaking the words of God, then that is not inspired word of God, because there's no prophets. And so the first thing we look for is, is it inspired by God? Is there some sort of uh, divine stamp on the book? Is there some sort of prophetic thing in the book that makes it to be inspired? The second thing for the Old Testament is, is there a recognition by a spokesman of God? And so this is, again, the kind of the, uh, the prophetic books is that a, a spokesman of God, a chosen person of God is recognizing this as uh, being part of God's work and, and how it is confirming the message of God. Lastly, with the Old Testament, is is it preserved by the people of God? And so here we look at as as Christians, when it comes to the Old Testament, is do the Hebrews, do the Hebrew Jews recognize this as part of their canon? And so the Protestant... Old Testament canon, the collection of books recognized, the 39 books of the Old Testament are the same as the ones that the uh, the Jews are recognizing to be true as well. They recognize that as their authoritative scripture. So when you look at the apocryphal books like Maccabees and Tobit and others, um, the Jews didn't see that as inspired. And so when the people of God, the ones who wrote the books, did not see that as the inspired word of God, then uh, we normally don't take that to be inspired as well because they're the ones uh, who are going to be accepting it. So did the people of God, the Jews at that time, preserve this and recognize this as inspired work? When they did not, then we don't either. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, uh, there's kind of a lot of different criteria, but it boils down to three main points. Number one is apostolicity is a kind of a bigger word. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but apostolicity is the word of, is it written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle? And so what this is doing is saying, look, if, if you're going to write the book, you need to have been an apostle of Jesus or an associate or, re- or of an apostle to show that you actually have authority as writing this as someone who is there or talk to the people who are there. And so we have Mark, the gospel of Mark, written by Mark, uh, coming from Peter, who was an apostle. So Peter, most likely telling his stories to Mark, Mark writing those stories down. So Mark is an associate of an apostle. Uh, Luke was not only interviewing the eyewitnesses, but Luke was recognized as Paul of having uh, authority. And so that is why we recognize the gospel of Luke as being part of the gospels. And so we're looking, is this apostolicity? And so this helps kind of clarify confusion. So I remember, man, long time ago. When I first got into apologetics, um, I was a missionary overseas in the Dominican Republic and a mission team actually came down uh, to the Dominican Republic on a missions trip. And um, I had a house where I had some extra bedrooms uh, for people to stay when they came on mission trips. And I remember uh, one uh, group coming down and some guys coming to stay in my house. And one of the first nights I'm talking with the guys who are on the mission trip, getting to know them. And one of the guys says, uh, in short, kind of in passing, like, I'm an atheist. And I was like, wait, you're on a mission trip. And he's like, yeah, the church, you know, I kind of was attending this church because it seemed um, kind of interested in Christianity. And uh, they said that they're taking a trip down to the Dominican Republic and they needed some help. And so I signed up to help. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists, but I'm, I'm curious to help and kind of be here. And I was like brand new in apologetics. And so I'm like, well, um, hey, let's kind of talk about this. This sounds interesting. Uh, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts and maybe talk about some of your questions and so we stayed up, man, we stayed up every night if that ministry trip, We were doing ministry all day long and he would be playing in the worship team. He didn't believe the songs that were playing, but he's playing in the worship team. And then at night we would stay up till one o'clock in the morning having questions. And one of the big questions and challenges that they have that he had is that he had watched like the Da Vinci Code, where it talked about these lost gospels, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary um, and others. And he goes, why aren't these in the New Testament? If they're written early, why aren't these included? And so we began to look at some of the details of these Gospels. And the first thing that we recognize and the first test that they don't pass is that these lost Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, come from between the 2nd and 4th century. So these are coming at least 70 years, if not more, after Jesus, when the apostles had died. And so we don't recognize something coming from the 2nd century or 3rd century or 4th century As having authority, because it's not written by an apostle or an associate of the apostle, someone who is right there alongside to write down this information. Uh, So when the Gospel of Mary, it comes along later on, second to fourth century. um, Clearly, Mary is dead. Mary did not write that. Now, people are, again, writing these false gospels and putting the names of Thomas and Judas and Mary on them and Peter to try to show that these gospels had authority. Because, man, if Mary's, Jesus was mom, Mary actually wrote this. That's amazing. Um, The problem is is that this gospel is dated later on when Mary couldn't have written it. So that is one reason we don't see these as having authority and are not accepted as part of the New Testament. So the first thing is it has to be written by an apostle or associate of an apostle. And this is why some books are are challenged, right, by Hebrews. Uh, We don't know who wrote Hebrews. And so there's why some books are kind of challenged because we're not quite sure how it passes this first test. The second thing that we want to look for on why a book is chosen for the New Testament canon is uh, orthodoxy. Now, meaning not the orthodox church, but meaning does it teach things that are consistent with other things that we know are Christian teachings, that we know are consistent with the word of God. And so when we look at the teachings of Jesus and what he taught, uh, then we look at books and say, look, is this consistent with what Jesus teaches? And so when it comes to these lost gospels, uh, the teachings are not consistent. When it looks at the Apocrypha, the teachings are not consistent. Talking to us about praying for the dead in Maccabees, uh, nowhere else in scripture do we see an example of praying for the dead. It's not consistent with what Jesus and what the authoritative books teach. Uh, We see others like Gnostic teachings, like the spirit is good and and the physical body is evil and Jesus was not actually a physical human being, but just looked like a human being and as only spirit. Um, That's not what we see in the gospels, Jesus resurrecting bodily from the grave. And so we see that these books also teach things that are not consistent with what we know is authoritative. And so they fail the test of orthodoxy. Lastly, and this goes by a few different terms, but one term it goes by is what is called pedigree. Was it accepted by the early church? And so when you look at the Gospels, um, the Gospels were accepted very early on. In fact, most of the New Testament canon was like accepted by the second century. And so the early church recognized these writings as having authority. Uh, First Timothy, Paul quotes the book of Luke in First Timothy, who's written in the 50s. He quotes Luke and calls it scripture. And so we recognize that Luke had to be written before that for, in order for Paul to quote it. Uh, Paul can't quote Luke and call it scripture if Luke is written after. Uh, so Luke is written before and already considered scripture by the time Paul is writing in the 50s in First Timothy. And so uh, these are sort of the kind of criteria that we look at. And so it's not that, you know, often here Constantine is just picking and choosing these books later on. That's not the case of what's happening. But what we see that's happening is that there is actually criteria that we are looking at looking for actual proof or evidence that this book is authoritative, that this book is inspired, that this book is the word of God. It's not just simply sitting down and picking and choosing the books that we like and don't like. And so uh, hopefully this kind of helps as you address some of the objections uh, that may come up, that may be raised to you, Um, about uh, why certain books are in the Bible, why are other ones not included, uh, why do we trust these ones and not others, Uh, there are good reasons that we can go to more in-depth. So um, if you have other questions on that, please comment on this video. I do wanna do maybe something more in-depth on New Testament, Old Testament canonization. And so if that's a topic that's interesting to you, maybe comment on certain books or or that you wanna kind of hear something more on that, I'd love to kind of do a more in-depth analysis of why certain books are chosen and why they are not. Um, so that you can have more confidence in what you believe in being the word of God. Um, So with that, those are some of the main questions that came in. I don't see any more questions in the live chat. So I'm gonna sign off a little bit early uh, this week. Um, But let me just say that, uh, hey, if you are here, um still watching thank you so much for being here thank you for uh for participating hopefully uh addressing some of these questions has helped you with the issues that you are dealing with um again i want to take this time once a month to kind of be more specific to the things that you are are dealing with things that are pressing to you to help you be more faithful followers of Christ, or if you're a skeptic to help address some of the issues and, and and objections that you have against the Christian worldview. I want to encourage you next month to call into the show that we can have a conversation, that we can have some back and forth. There's always a lot more fun listening to that rather than just hearing me talk the whole time. That's at least what I tell my students. It's a lot more fun when they're in a conversation with me and they're pushing back and asking questions and we go back and forth and just hearing me lecture for a full hour and I get that. So anyways, I'd love for that. If that's something that you want to do, you can always call in next time. Um, But for that, I will say goodbye. But uh, before I actually say goodbye, there's a couple of interviews coming up um, and I can't tell you what they are because they're not confirmed yet, but I have two or three interviews coming up this next month that I'm really looking forward to. So if you would, you can subscribe, uh, you can connect. If you have enjoyed the show, you can connect, um, subscribe, like it, please. Uh, That really helps. Share it. Um, I just love doing this and helping you guys think through these things. So if you want to share this with your friends and help them think about these as well, that's very helpful. There's also a ton of other videos on the YouTube channel that you can check out addressing a wide range of issues myself, as well as scholars and other apologists and scientists that I've had on the show to help address some of these big questions. Again, the question that came in from Adonis at the beginning, I encourage you to go check out the interview with William Lane Craig on the atonement that I did. We answer that question. I think his answer was a good one, as well as uh, if you want to connect, if you want to support, again, I just love doing this for free. I don't ask anything from return, but if you want to uh, help out, there are ways uh, down below on Patreon or through a church you can give and get that tax deduction credit. And so uh, with that have a wonderful rest of your day check out the videos that are coming up soon and i look forward to connecting with you and hearing more from you in the future oh let me just say this if i didn't i probably lost you no one's probably here anymore but anyways if you're still here um i am also open to coming to your church or event and speaking i i am starting to fill up my schedule for next summer um and so and also next spring so if you uh, want to have me come out to an event a church a camp retreat whatever it may be uh, go over to my website I'll put that up here. Uh, Boom, there it is. RyanPauley.org, CoffeeHouseQuestions.com is the same thing we'll get you there. And uh, you can fill out a speaking request. I'd love to come uh, help uh, train your group on a wide range of topics that I have available. So you can check that out there. So with that, have a blessed and wonderful rest of your day. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. Don't hesitate to follow, your love will guide my